Morning. It's good to see all of you. Thank you for coming and being a part of our worship services here at Ivy Creek this morning. And I want to echo what Pastor Dave said earlier. I want to invite you to make sure that you come back and be a part of our fall festival this afternoon, beginning at 4 o'clock. And those of you who are coming early to set up and to serve, I thank you for all of that uh, efforts as well. But I hope you'll make your plans to be back here this afternoon as we get to enjoy fellowshipping, enjoying one another's company, but also as we get to enjoy uh, rubbing elbows and getting to interact with our community. And so uh, we want to, uh, you know, someone asked me earlier, is this an all hands on deck? Yes, it is. This is an all hands on deck. We want all of you here to be a part of that and to be able to embrace our community and being able to share the love of Christ with them. So please come back and be a part of that this afternoon. If you've got your Bibles this morning, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to the Psalms once again as we continue our sermon series we began a couple of weeks back in the Psalms of the Ascent. And this week we will be looking at Psalm 123 and 124. Psalm 123 and 124. As you make your way there, I thought I would share something interesting that I read this week. Uh, it comes from a book written in 2011 entitled Sports Casting. Now the authors of this book was a finance professor at the University of Chicago named Toby Moskowitz and a sports writer from Sports Illustrated named John Wertheim. And these two guys teamed up together to, uh, to challenge many of the thought-to-be foregone conclusions regarding what it takes to win and ultimately what causes losses in professional sports. In one of the chapters in this book, the authors of Sportscasting set out to take a scientific look at something that is typically just sort of taken for granted in sports called the home field advantage. And in their research, they compiled statistics as they went back and looked all the way across a bunch of professional sports in, in, in different times. And, and what they found out was that the statistics actually show that there is such a thing as a home field advantage. As a matter of fact, in Major League Baseball, they found out that the home team wins 54% of the time. And that's been, that, they take that back uh, numerous decades. Uh, they found out that in the NFL, since the, since the uh, uh, NFL was first uh, brought in, I believe in, uh, they, they began to look at that and said on average that the home team wins 57% of the time in the NFL. And in the NBA, looking back over the course of at least three decades, they came away with the understanding that the NBA home team wins 60% of the time. Now the question that they began to grapple with, though, was why? Why did the home team seem to always win more than the away team? And is it that athletes are sleeping in their own beds and eating home-cooked meals? That's what some suppose. Is it, is it that they, they have a better, uh, they feel more comfortable on their own home court or their own home field? They just know it better, and so that gives them the edge? Or is it because perhaps that the crowd at their home uh, stadium or their home court is just louder than the other crowds? Well, many have offered those as solutions, but, but in their research, the authors said that those things really weren't factors. As a matter of fact, they said that, uh, that when athletes are at home, they don't seem to hit a pitch or pitch a baseball better or pass a football better at home than they do abroad. Furthermore, they said that the crowd doesn't appear to help the home team or harm the visitors. Even the supposed wear and tear of travel, they concluded, doesn't seem to be the main reason why the home team wins more often than the away team. So the question still begs to be asked, why then does that seem to happen? Where does the advantage come from? What is it that this finance professor and this sports writer point to that makes the difference between wins and losses? Well, in a word, it's the refs. Moskowitz and Wertheim found that home teams essentially get slightly preferential treatment from the officials 
though they point out that that help does not come from the officials voluntarily or intentionally. Nevertheless, because the refs are human beings and because they are social creatures like the rest of us, they assimilate with the emotion of the home crowd and occasionally they will make a call that makes a whole lot of noisy people who are only a few feet away from them very happy. And when they make those salt calls, ultimately some of those calls will influence the outcome of the game, causing the home team to win more often than the away team. Now that's the result of their statistics and their research. What I found interesting is that if you take that information and you think about it, not in relation to sporting events, but to us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and to the playing field that we find ourselves on, well, you have to begin to question whether or not we have to be able to consider ourselves the home team anymore or are we the away team. In fact, I read a quote by a pastor and an author named Caleb Kaltenbach who in discussing the erosion of a biblical understanding of morality and our culture, said this, we have to recognize that we are no longer the home team. There is no longer a home field advantage for us. In fact, Dennis Rainey, who heads up the Christian parachurch organization Family Life, he wrote that for a long time here in America, the surrounding culture has rooted for the very same things that we as Christians have rooted for. They've cheered the same victories, he writes. Then he says those days are no more. In fact, in many respects, the tide has turned and we find ourselves increasingly in the minority and among the ridiculed and the marginalized in our culture. There are many groups who openly embrace and who even diligently work to advance a worldview that is diametrically opposed to the, what the Scriptures teach us. And as one that I read this week commented, the crowd has been swayed. What we find is that many in our culture are no longer cheering for those like us who oppose the values of the Bible. Instead, they are cheering for those who oppose us. The author states this, he says, increasingly the refs are on their side and we can no longer expect that the, Christ, that the standards we as Christians embrace will be shared by our neighbors. So the question is, what are we to do? How are we to respond? Are we supposed to just simply throw our hands up and quit? Do we resign ourselves to the fact that this is just how things are? And there's nothing we can do to change it? Absolutely not. You see, as believers, the Bible clearly tells us that we have a responsibility to be salt and light in a decaying and darkened world. We have a responsibility to stand firm and to live out our faith in the truth of the gospel. We have the responsibility to hold up and support the truth of God's inerrant word. And we have the responsibility to pray for our world and our nation and our leaders and our state, and all of our governing officials. And particularly as Americans, and specifically at this time, we have a responsibility to vote and to do what we can to put people in office who will uphold the truth of God's Word. Christians are not called to meld into the background or sit on the sidelines 
But rather, we are called to stand for truth and to represent our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to a lost and to a dying world. But brothers and sisters, when we do that, we must do so with open eyes, recognizing that Kaltenbach is probably right when he says that as Christians, we are no longer the home team. But brothers and sisters, he is only reminding us of something that Jesus Christ himself said to us two millennia ago. In John chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus Christ said this, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Brothers and sisters, as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must remember that this world is not our home. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are strangers who are traveling in an increasingly strange land. And all of that then brings us to where we find ourselves in our study of the Psalms of the Ascent. You see, today we're going to look at Psalm 123 and 124. And I believe that as we do, we will find that these two Psalms, when we read them together, will actually give us the outline for how we should respond as believers who increasingly find ourselves ridiculed and persecuted and marginalized and no longer part of the home team. So with that as an introduction this morning, let's hear God's holy word. Psalm 123, the inscription says this, prayer for relief from contempt. A song of ascents, verse 1. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hands of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. For we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. Psalm 124, the Lord, the defense of his people, a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord, who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. When their wrath was kindled against us, then the waters would have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over our soul. Then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, our, we come before you, God, recognizing that your word always speaks truth into our lives. It never it never tries to spin things. It never tries to present a false narrative. It always tells things as they are. We recognize that when we read it, then we can trust it. And we know that what it tells us is good, and it is right, and it is purposeful for us. 
So as your children, we have gathered together around the open book this morning, asking and pleading for your Holy Spirit to speak through these words into our lives for our good and for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Now, if you were with us last week, you probably recognize that the opening verse of Psalm 123 is very similar to the opening verse of Psalm 121. In Psalm 121, it says, I lift my eyes into the hills, and then it asks the question, from whence cometh my help? Well, here in Psalm 123, the psalmist lifts his eyes up, but he looks past the hills. He looks to the God who is enthroned in heaven, who dwells there and who sees all things and who made all things. In fact, you may have noticed that in the first two verses of this psalm, in Psalm 123, that looking eyes are an important recurring theme in those first two verses. The first one, as we noted, talks about the, the psalmist lifting his eyes and looking up to God, to you, he says, who dwell in the heavens. And then he follows that with two metaphors. He, talk, he talks about servants who, who look to the hand of their master. And then he talks about a maid who looks to the hand of her mistress. Now, it, it's possible that, that those metaphors can kind of get lost on us in our day. After all, we really don't live in a world that is dominated by masters and servants or by maids and, and mistresses. We don't, but, but if you've ever watched Downton Abbey, go ahead, be honest. I actually had to watch that some myself and I enjoyed it. I honestly, I did. But if you've seen any TV shows like that or movies like that that are set back in a former time, you can begin to understand a little bit about what the psalmist is writing about here. He, he's talking about a, a servant who stands and has his eyes trained and locked on the man of the house to the degree that when he looks at him, all it takes is a little move of the finger or, or maybe the lift of an eyebrow or just the slight nod of a head and immediately that's enough to send that servant, to send that maid into action, doing what it is that she or he knows needs to be done. That's the metaphors that... that that the psalmist uses here to describe how he looks at the God who sits enthroned in heaven. And he, he talks about how he looks waiting, patiently, expectantly, watching. How long does he wait? How long does he look? Well, he tells us. He looks until God has mercy on us. That's how long. You see, here the focus now in the psalm moves from the looking eyes. It moves to the, the thought of mercy. A plea for help. A plea for God's intervention in their lives. In fact, notice that once the psalmist's eyes are firmly fixed upon God, then that's when the cry of his heart begins to gush out. And he says this, he says, Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. Now, the word translated mercy there is, is the Hebrew word hanan, which, which means to show favor. It means to, to show mercy toward one who is undeserving, to show favor toward one from a, from, that comes from a superior to an inferior. And it is something that is completely undeserved. And what we realize is that the psalmist really here is asking repetitively and pleading for mercy. It gives us the indication that, 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 that this, this psalmist is in a weak and he's in an untenable position. The psalmist is not the one with the upper hand here. In fact, he's not the one controlling whatever situation is, is being foisted upon him. 
He is the one who's being controlled. He's the one who's experiencing the negativity and the problems that come from the outside. And what he makes clear is just by repeating some more certain words again, he makes it clear just how difficult the situation is. Notice what he says there in the second half of verse 3 and following. He says that his pleas of mercy come because we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. The ESV translates these verses this way by saying that we have had more than enough contempt. We have had more than enough scorn. In other words, the psalmist is basically saying here that his prayer on, for his behalf and on behalf of those who are around him who have suffered attacks, they have simply been worn out. It's like, a, it's like a sponge that has reached its maximum ability to soak up what's there. It can't absorb anymore. It's completely saturated. He says, we've been worn out. We're exceedingly filled. We've had more than enough. So in this psalm, what we find is someone who represents a people who are completely worn out and overwhelmed by the ridicule and persecution that they face. And so this psalmist, he looks to heaven and he trains his eyes upon the God of heaven and he begs for mercy. And honestly, this is where the psalm ends. It's quite abrupt. I mean, when this psalm ends, we're left wondering, well, what happens? What happens here? Does God show him mercy? Does, does all of that that he's asking for, does it come about? Does he set things right? What happens to the people who are, who are opposing him? Do they get what was coming to them? You know, in many ways, I believe that describes a lot of the questions that are going through our minds as we live in the day that we live today. A lot of those same questions are rolling through our minds. Is God going to show up? Is he going to show us mercy? What happens if this over here takes place? God, are you going to make things right? What happens when we're attacked by those who oppose us? Are you going to come to our defense? In many respects, we have the exact same kind of questions that we're left with at the end of the 123rd Psalms. But I want you to know, the psalmist, even though it's obvious that he was under great stress and under much duress, he simply says this, God, all I know to do is to look to you in faith, and an expectant hope that you will grant mercy, not because we deserve it, but because your nature is such that you love to bless sinners like us. That leads me to the first point that I want you to see today. The first point on your outline this morning is this. When we are weary from the scorn and persecution we receive from the world, we must look up with a patient and hopeful faith to the God of heaven and pray for mercy. It's what this psalm teaches us that we must do. And brothers and sisters, this is a day and time in which we live when it's not easy for believers to stand on the truth of God's word. For example, if you go out in the marketplace in the world today and you simply say something along the lines of with conviction that you believe that rather than through chance and happenstance that the world and the universe came into existence by the fact that a creative God spoke and things came from nothing into something, if you hold to that, to that viewpoint, 
And understand this, many will say you're just simply dumb and uneducated and a scientific dunce. Furthermore, to take a stand on God's Word and say that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, or that homosexuality is a sinful perversion of God's design for humanity, to take that stance will almost always lead to being labeled as hateful and an unenlightened bigot. To take a stand today and say that abortion, the killing of an infant in the mother's womb, is an act of murder against a helpless human being, well, that puts us at risk of incurring the wrath politicians and many other various social groups alike. And to state that there are not many different paths by which folks can get to heaven, but rather there on the authority of God's word, there is only one way by which you can get to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ, God's only Son, whom He sent to be the propitiation for our sins. And it is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. If you told of that stance, well, understand this. That will probably draw, ultimately, the greatest condemnation of all. But friends, understand this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has held these and other core beliefs throughout the millennia. The difference is that now we no longer find ourselves on the home team. Instead, we find ourselves in many cases on the cusp of facing persecution like many of our brothers and sisters in other countries and in other generations have faced. So what are we to do? Well, we're not to retreat. We are to fulfill our responsibilities just as we discussed earlier. But furthermore, the psalmist tells us here, we must look up with a patient and hopeful faith to the God of heaven and pray for his mercy. And that is where Psalm 23 ends. And if we stopped right there this morning, we would have examined and been revealed, had revealed to us the truth. Thankfully, the Bible also continues to talk to us. And this is why I think it's important that we also come behind and read Psalm 124. Because I believe that the person who took all of these individual psalms and assembled them together in what we call the Psalms of the Ascent did so with intentionality. And I believe that with Psalm 123, he recognized that there was a truth that was being revealed, but that in Psalm 124, we find the other half of the story. And I want us to examine it this morning as well. Because in Psalm 124, we find the psalmist who in this case is David, giving us another direction toward which we should cast the gaze of our eyes. This psalm is one that is written retrospectively. It is, as some have put it, a psalm written from the perspective of an elder who has lived a little while and experienced some things. This psalm, in many respects, is a psalm of encouragement for those who are fraught with worthy, worry and despair. Because in it, David forces us to look back and see just how God has come to our aid in the past when we have faced dire situations. David begins by making a conditional statement there in, in verse 1 of, of Psalm 124. He says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And then it's just kind of, he stops. And he just sort of looks around at all the nation of Israel. Maybe it was a choir that he had situated behind him to help him sing this song. And he stops and he looks at it and says, look, y'all need to sing this song along with me. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And then he begins to start making these statements. And they, these statements begin to beg questions. 
First of all, he says this, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive in verse 3. In verse 4, he says the flood would have swept us away and the torrent would have gone over us. David, David recalls that if there had ever been a time when we had almost lost it, when we had almost gone over the edge, these were the times. And I want you to notice how he depicts them. He depicts his enemies as like ravenous beasts. Verse 3 and 6, he talks about, about the fact that they would swallow him up alive. In verse 6, he talks about these teeth that would have torn him apart. In verses 4 and 5, he, he uses a different metaphor. There he talks about the calamity that these, these enemies of his would have wanted to uh, uh, impose upon him. And that calamity would have been like being swept away by floodwaters. If you can remember what it was like when we were watching the images of, of Hurricane Matthew as it swept up through the Caribbean and up the East Coast. And we saw those, those pictures that came out of the, the floods and the waters and tearing up towns and, and, and the, the damage that was done. David is saying that's what it would have been like. If my enemies had been able to triumph over us, we would have been like that. And then he uses another metaphor towards the end down in verse 7. He talks about like a fowler, a, a one who would go out and trap birds. And he says, we would have been like a bird, a helpless bird trapped in a, in, in a snare had it not been for God. David uses these metaphors as a way to describe what things would have been like, how things would have gone for him and the nation of Israel had not God been on their side. In other words, the only reason that they had not experienced all of these horrible consequences that their enemies had planned to carry out upon them was because God in His mercy and grace stepped in and prevented it from happening. And it is here where we most clearly see the change in perspective. You see, this psalm, though it clearly recognizes and it clearly lays out the hazards that endangered the psalmist and all of Israel, it nevertheless is a psalm of thanksgiving and rejoicing because of the help that the Lord provided. Therefore, the psalm really focuses not on the hazards put in place by the enemy. Rather, it focuses on the help that was provided by the Savior. Let me ask you, how often in your life do you do that what if thing? Do you look back across the landscape of your life and begin asking the what if questions? Most of the time, I would submit that our, our, our what-if questions are something along these lines. What if I had not taken this job and taken that job instead? What if I had married my high school sweetheart? Or what if I had not married my high school sweetheart? What if I'd have turned left instead of turning right? What if I'd done this instead of doing that? Truth is, in our lives, we can what-if ourselves to death if we start that. Because we'll never come with a sufficient answer. But here's what I want you to know. Occasionally, it is highly appropriate for us to go back and ask the what-if questions, just as David really did. What if God had not protected my life at this particular point? What if God had not intervened when I wasn't even paying attention and did something on my behalf that I didn't even realize He was doing until years later? What if He had not provided me with guidance when I faced a particular issue or when I faced overwhelming odds? What if God had just abandoned me and decided that I was not worth the trouble? This is really what I believe David is doing here. 
His backward glance across the landscape of his life helps him to recall the sovereign protection and guidance and mercy and grace that God had liberally given and displayed. And listen, you know what it does? It causes him to raise his gaze from the things that happened in his life back to the one God who he always took, took to and looked at to begin with. Notice that all the what-ifs, and all the conditional statements that he makes in this psalm ends with him back in verse 8 saying this, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. His eyes are back on God. He's looked and seen how God has worked in his life. And all that's done is drive his gaze back to the one who has promised that he will never leave him or forsake him. Please understand this. In this psalm, David is rejoicing. This psalm is alive with wonder and joy and relief. But in it, David's not, he's not boasting about himself. He's not glorying in the triumphalism of, of Israel. What he is boasting in rather is in the God who alone has the ability not only to create this world, but sits enthroned over that which he has created and sovereignly rules over it. I love what Walt Kaiser, that Old Testament scholar, has written. He says, only such hope could then as well as now match any desperate situation that would send one to God for help. And friends, that leads me to the last point that I want you to see this morning. See, our motivation to look up to the Lord comes from looking back and recalling the numerous times that the all-powerful Creator came to our aid and delivered us from danger and destruction. Now, what I want you to know is when David writes this, he uses the imagery of the metaphors to kind of describe the physical and external trouble. But I want you to understand this. When we look at Psalm 124 and also back in Psalm 123, it tells us that you, it also applies to us as it relates to the punishment that is due to us because of our sin. You see, what we learned and what we continue to study the Bible, what it reveals to us is that Jesus, God's only Son, came to earth and died in our place. He took upon himself the punishment that was due to us because of our sin. And what we can say is, had it not been for Jesus doing that, had he not done that, you and I would remain in our sin. We would remain condemned to die and suffer eternal wrath. As the song puts it this way, had it not been for a hill called Mount Calvary, had it not been for the old rugged cross, had it not been for a man called Jesus, then forever our soul would be lost. I want you to imagine that for just a moment. What, what if God had not intervened to save us? Where would we be? Furthermore, what if he did not intervene to keep us on the path of discipleship? What if he never lovingly corrected us and brought us back after we fell away? What if, what if God in His mercy and grace could not be counted upon to preserve us and to persevere with us in our own sin? Much like what David writes, if God had not intervened in our lives by sending Jesus to die for our sin, then we would have no joy in our hearts. We would have no song on our lips. We would have no hope in our lives. Because of our own sinfulness, we would be swallowed alive and swept away under God's judgment. But friend, the good news of the gospel is this. The Lord did intervene. He did send Jesus. And Jesus did die for our sins. And He did rise from the grave, thereby defeating death, hell, and sin. And consequently, He offers 
pardon for you and I for our sins and he offers peace with God the Father to all who will by faith receive him and receive his offer of grace and mercy. My question for you this morning is this. Is that your testimony? Have you looked up to the God of heaven and pleaded for the mercy that he offers you through Jesus? That is how the scriptures say we must come to him. We must humble ourselves before him, not demanding salvation because of our goodness, but receiving his salvation as a gift because there's nothing good about us. Friend, this is the first step that you must take on the journey of discipleship, the journey to the heart of God. And understand this, know that the Bible never promises you that it will be easy and trouble-free. In fact, trouble is guaranteed to meet us if we put Christ first in our lives and if we make obedience to His Word a priority. And that's why I began this sermon by making the case that Christians were no longer have a home-field advantage. We no longer are the home team. Nevertheless, what I also want you to know this morning and what I hope that the Word of God encourages your heart with is this, is that no matter what you face on this road as you live the life of a believer in search of the heart of God, no matter how treacherous the road may get for you, no matter how, how difficult the path may become, no matter the danger and the opposition that you may face, we must not become discouraged or overwhelmed with despair. Because you see, even though we may no longer be the home team, we have no reason to fear or to worry because we still have God on our side. And the God who sits enthroned in the heavens is the one who made heaven and earth. And he is the one who stands behind us. And as David has written in Psalm 56, verse 11, In God I trust and I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 is just as applicable. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered us up for, delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And then he goes on to complete it this way. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. When we look around at our circumstances and at the troubles that we may face, rather than despair, we must look back in remembrance to all that God has done and look up in faith to the one who abounds in love and mercy. Have you done that? Have you taken that first step and trusted in his dear son if you have, have you spent the time looking back and remembering how he has delivered you in the past? I pray that you will do that and ultimately allow your gaze to fix on your Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.